This has been a most unusual week, hasn't it? In a most unusual month, in a most unusual year. Last September, we were still trying to get our heads around the, the various COVID restrictions and where we were and what we were doing. We could not have possibly predicted that by this stage, Russia was calling up reservists to go and fight in Ukraine. That there would have been a leadership election within the political party that was in power with a huge majority. That the accession of Charles would have taken place following the death of the Queen. Or that we would have seen a Chancellor of the Exchequer announcing such large borrowing partly to fund tax cuts. Where this month, in a book or a film, we would possibly dismiss it as being far-fetched. You know, the, the, the author got carried away. And yet, and yet, we have journeyed through it and are left to wonder what comes next following major events that will be recalled in history classes for centuries from now in the future. The parable that Jesus tells us in today's passage gives us an insight into what the world was like in the first century. How the richest and the poorest lived. And how the people understood themselves. It also gives us a salutary lesson about our life choices. The rich man, dressed in finest linen and purple robes, it seems to suggest more than someone just among the middle classes. It's more than a tradesman. It's more than a farmer or a vineyard owner. More than the Pharisees that Jesus is talking to at the time. It seems to reflect the highest reaches of society. It may be a depiction of Caiaphas, the high priest, or perhaps Herod Antipas, who had John the Baptist executed. In the parable of the prodigal son, a fatted calf is owned by the farmer, that's the father, and it's killed and a feast is held when the youngest returns home. But it is known that Antipas held regular feasts. And it's recorded by Josephus, who was a first-century historian, a chronicler of that time, that when Herod's son Agrippa becomes king of Judea, huge feasts, huge feasts are held on a daily basis. You know, that fatted calf is killed every day. And so we see a society of those with great amounts in some places. 
and also those that have nothing, absolutely nothing. And that, in our society, might still be the case. Huge amounts and nothing. While the feast goes on, we are introduced to a character that Jesus calls Lazarus. This is the only time in any parable that a name is given to one of the characters. Normally, we might have a certain individual as the sort of introduction to the person. Or we might have, there was a man, there was a woman, there was a vineyard keeper, there was a servant, but not here. The man is named Lazarus. Perhaps with in mind how the story will close, how the parable will finish, about that possibility of return. He is poor and he is hungry. He has open sores, which would make him not just unwell, but ritually unclean. And we might reasonably imagine him to be crippled, as we're given a description of him lying at the gate. That's typically where folk who were crippled would be, hoping for a handout, hoping to be blessed. We might also imagine the dogs who normally eat scraps or rubbish licking his wounds or aiding him. And certainly those who celebrate St. Lazarus' Day, which is in December, um, quite often do that with a blessing of dogs. They take that line. But it might be more realistic to see this as a prelude to something else less pleasant happening. The rich man's death is followed by a funeral service. His remains are buried, we are told. No similar comment is made about Lazarus. We go from the dogs licking his wounds to the Lord calling him home. How do we view the rich man of the passage? And how do we view this poor character? The Pharisees and many of the believers of the first century had the view that the wealthy had been blessed by God. They were wealthy because God had poured his blessing upon them. And those struggling and on the margins, they thought were guilty of sin. Remember that time where there's a blind man and there's that question about uh, who is it that sinned that caused this man to be born blind? You know, was it his parents? 
No, he was born blind so that a great miracle could occur. They, the people had uh, a bit of a, a prosperity theology. It comes through selective reading of the scripture, elevating the worship of money and materialism. This is how we establish what richness is and what we have, what we possess. But that's not how God sees it. It sets aside this understanding. It sets aside that the Lord blesses with sunshine and rain the righteous and the unrighteous. It ignores the story of faithful Job suffering affliction after affliction. It denies the teaching of the law which demands the care of the widow and the orphan. It fails to reflect God's love and the teaching of the prophets. It is the attitude of the kings and their courts as prophets trying to proclaim the word before the Babylonians came and the exile occurs. There are still believers that take that prosperity approach. That money comes through their faithfulness. And there are still folk, there are still people in churches that think, because somebody is ill or unwell, it's because of something they've done. I knew a family 20-odd years ago in Hampshire who, following the birth of a son with learning difficulties, the church leader accused the parents of having been sinful in some way. What is it that they'd done? Such beliefs are not true to the Christian faith. They're very far from it. And yet, they persist. The rich man from across a great divide calls out, Father Abraham! This is someone that knew God's word, or at least knew of God's word. He sees himself as a follower of faith. And he reveals that he also knows the name of the beggar who used to be at the gate wanting something from his table but never received it. Send Lazarus over here. Yeah. The rich man just demands. He expects things to happen when he gives the instruction. But that's not going to happen is it? It's become a time when he longs for compassion, but he had shown no compassion to Lazarus, who is now receiving the compassion of God. We might see this as the, the blessings in the Beatitudes coming to life. The meek 
inheriting the earth. Blessed be the poor, the meek, the lowly, those who mourn. It's what a, a commentary or a theologian might call eschatological reversion, right? A flipping things over in the end times as God's kingdom comes. The idea that the world is turned upside down. The first become last, and the last become first. New hope to those that were almost hopeless. The chasm separates. Oh, well, in that case, send Lazarus, again, giving the order, giving the order, send Lazarus to my father's house, to my family. That's the next plea. And it's a sort of petition that um, is told in many stories. There's about seven different stories that rabbis of the time told of wanting a messenger to come from heaven to share the news. And it appears in other cultures too. It's uh, across the Middle East, particularly in Egypt, where it was thought this story possibly originates, that sense of sending somebody back from heaven. And the five brothers that would hear, that would be woken up by this story, would repent, wouldn't they? And the fact that there's five brothers gives further emphasis to the idea that it might be Caiaphas that Jesus is suggesting is the rich man. It might be somebody that really did know something of God, know something of Abraham, because they were the high priest. It was their role to speak of God and to know the word. And yet it would seem they didn't know God's way at all. Surely the brothers would be woken up if someone returned from heaven, someone returned from the dead. They would certainly be very surprised because the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. It's one of the great complaints they had against Jesus was that Jesus kept saying that there would be a resurrection and yet they did not believe in it. But for the purpose of the parable, no one is returning. No one's returning to give the warning. The message of Moses and the prophets are said to be clear enough. There is a pattern of life that we should be living that the brothers of the rich man should have known, but they did not. Those of the family of the rich man already have the truth that separation will come 
if we do not choose to live God's way. And what is God's way? What is the worshipful way of life that we should have? Well, the prophet Micah put it, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. That clearly wasn't the way the rich man and his family were living. And the Pharisees who are hearing this parable have failed to live that way too. The upholders and the enforcers of the Mosaic law do not themselves uphold the law where it concerns the care of the poor. And we have to ask ourselves, do we choose the right path? We have not only Moses and the prophets, but we have the Son of God. He came to us and opens the door for us. We have the teaching in the Bible. We have ways of spreading that news that could not be imagined. But do we choose this path? The text is not in itself about being in the extremes of poverty or of wealth. But it is a challenge to us about how we relate to the world. Do we use the blessings God has given us, be it finance or time or patience? Do we use our home? Do we use our car? We may feel we have nothing. But if we examine ourselves, what do we have? Maybe it's a listening ear. Or is it a case that having heard the gospel, we continue to choose to live our life in our own way? Do we do the things that make a difference? Do we know a character like Lazarus at the gate, but choose to pretend we don't? September this year has been a month of major change in the UK. New Prime Minister, new King, new economics. It may also be a time of renewal of how we live for God, serving Him and reflecting His love in new ways ways that are true to his call upon our life. Amen.